I'm Nicole Stoddard, the founding artistic director of Thinking Cap Theater. Welcome to Wild's Legacy, a series of episodes in which I talk with wild biographers and scholars. In today's episode, I talk with Matthew Sturgis, historian, biographer, and the author of the 2018 biography, Oscar Wilde, A Life. So let me ask you this, Matthew, how did your, your relationship with Oscar begin? When did you first encounter um, his life and work and, and how did it impact you in a way that it led you to write a biography? Um, I think probably like many people, my first encounter with, with Wilde was um, being read some of his, his fairy stories, The Happy Prince and other uh, fairy, fairy tales. And they, they are still beautiful things to encounter. And they have, um, there's a real pathos and charm about them. But there's also, uh, sort of bubbling through them, this wonderful uh, wit, uh, a subversive humour, sort of every pomposity is is uh, undercut or, you know, um, uh, subtly um, lampooned. And a, a delight in language as well. And I... I, I just remember thinking, my goodness, you know, this this is fun. This is uh, exciting. The, the, these are the stories I want to, you know, I want to hear that again rather than uh, other things. Um, and then um, I suppose the uh, the plays, uh, you know, being taken to see. Uh, I mean, the importance of being earnest is, you know, is must rank as one of the perfect works of art in. Uh, um, in the British um, literary tradition, um, and uh, it's you know, just an unalloyed pleasure to uh, encounter that and see that. And uh, and then I even got to act in a production of it. And uh, I just um, yes uh, felt sort of huge um, enjoyment. It was you know pleasure. Which leads one on uh, uh, to learning, as I think Oscar said at, at one moment, and uh, and there is just a, a huge pleasure in his work, uh, which comes, I think, um, uh, through language to uh, to humour and to wit, and to the way that he plays with ideas um, is constantly stimulating, um, and I think that brought me into, into that whole world of the 1890s, uh, which he you know, dominated through his, uh, through his personality, uh, really. And um, I came to love uh, Beardsley's, um, Aubrey Beardsley's art. I mean, Beardsley really made his, his name uh, first, um, or uh, you know, established his great celebrity through illustrating Wilde's play of Salome. And, um, uh, I love the works of Max Beerbohm, who, of course, was uh, in a way Wilde's great disciple um, and uh, carried some of his his vision and his wit into um, into the next half generation. And so, when I started uh, um, uh, thinking what I wanted to write about, I realised I wanted to be a writer, and uh, I realised these were the people I wanted. To write about I, my training was a, as an historian and um i just thought that this was a very rich piece of cultural history at the, at, you know the end of the victorian age uh where some of the, the great um 
certainties of um, uh, of uh, the, the Queen's long reign were sort of beginning to, to fray and um, people were reacting against them and um, fissures were opening up. I, um, it just seemed rich and exciting and optimistic. It was, it was like, it seemed to be like one of those sort of moments that recur in history, you know, the 1960s or something like that, where there's an energy and excitement uh, in the time. And um, and so I began, yes, uh, um, working on uh, figures from that period. I mean, initially I wrote a, uh, an overview of the, the decadence of the 1890s, um, a book called Passionate Attitudes. And then uh, while working on that, I realized that Aubrey Beardsley's centenary was fast approaching. And it was going to be a hundred years since his um, uh, since his death, and so I thought I must um, that that would be an opportunity to to write something about Beardsley. And in writing about Beardsley, I uh, had to sort of look uh, more and more closely at Wilde's uh, life and achievement. And um, and I began to realise that although you know he is someone who's much much written about, and there are many interesting. Uh, books on wild um uh what there hadn't been uh really for quite a long time was a um a sort of complete biography of him run, uh, from the cradle to the grave and the uh, the last um, sort of great uh, one was done in the uh, the end of the 1980s um by an, a wonderful American academic called uh, Richard Elman. And although it uh, um, was a very good book in its way, it um, I think it had sort of flaws and lacunae like probably all books do. Um, uh, and those flaws and lacunae have become more and more apparent with the passing decades. But also in the intervening years, 30 years, really, um, an enormous amount of interesting new information had come to light. I mean, uh, new letters had been found, new documents had turned out. There was an amazing moment at, um, in the year 2000, the centenary of, of Wilde's death, when a, a woman turned up at the British Library with a carrier bag containing the complete transcript of Wilde's first trial, the, 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 the um, uh, uh, libel action against the Marquis of Queensbury, which I mean had previously been known from um, sort of abbreviated trial transcripts and um, uh, press reports, but but here suddenly we had the full verbatim uh, account of this extraordinary trial and the extraordinary um, confrontation bet uh, between Wilde and um, Carson, the uh, Queensbury's counsel who was an old university friend and contemporary of Wilde's, but who was uh, appearing against him and, and really um, wore, wore him down in this uh, a terrible uh, cross-examination that um, um, sort of initiated Wilde's collapse and downfall. When was that, that someone turned in this transcript of the trial? So, so she, I think she was the grand daughter would she have been the daughter no i think must have been the granddaughter of 
um, one of the lawyers involved in the in the case. And so I didn't know. Um, so yes, the, the sort of and so it had just been sort of at home in a in a drawer. I think sort of recognised and preserved as something interesting. But um, because well, I'm wondering. Um, there was a play I'm sure you're familiar with called The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde by a playwright yes. Kaufman. And I wonder if the turning in of those documents predated or postdated that play. <laughs> yes, so I think there certainly were plays about the trials that predated the uh, the, the, dis uh, the discovery because um, uh, the, that there was such a massive reporting about the trials that um, uh, that, that a lot of um, material existed, and and uh, the courts did preserve um, uh, some stuff. So the, there was a, a volume, you know, published in a in the sixties, I think, of, uh, in a ser series called Great British Trials of the Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, which sort of appeared to give. A, um, I mean, it's very interesting to read. Uh, the complete transcript uh, as we now have it against what appears in uh, in that book and um uh you yes yeah, so you, and you realize um uh, sort of what sort of abbreviations and concisions and uh omissions sort of creep into the into that record compared uh, with the verbatim uh, account so, and where is that house? Is it at the British Library as well? It's at the British Library, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so, okay, so there, there was a need you felt then for a new biography and with all of these new resources that over time had, had become available. Yeah. Um, and not to mention the fact that Elman is the, I remember, so I was at Trinity College doing a master's degree about 20 years ago. Oh, wow. and, yeah. yeah, and uh, and I remember reading the Elman biography, and like so many people, being amazed with that image of of someone that we he was saying it was it was wild dressed as Salome, right? Yes, <laughs> but yes. we now know that image is not uh, is not wild, but a Russian yes. a Russian actress. Or yes, something, right? <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> Um, so tell me, what would you say, I'm sure out of you had many discoveries doing all kinds of archival research, but what are a couple of the greatest insights or discoveries that you made in, in writing your biography about Wilde? Um, so one thing I, um, I did was uh, there's a, um, a fantastic uh, library in, in London, um, uh, which is not the British Library, which is like you know the Library of Congress or you know a, a copyright library that holds um, everything in New Order up books from the stacks. But uh, this is the London Library, which is a, a, a private in institution. You you pay a subscription to be, to be a member. Um, and it has fantastic holdings of, um, of books, mainly in the humanities or whatever. But the joy of, um, of it as a library is that the books are kept on open stacks so that you wander through the, the stacks of books, uh, which means that you can find books that you didn't know you were looking for. You don't, you don't have to sort of be searching in a catalogue and then ordering, I think. 
and they and the uh, books are arranged by um, uh, sort of in subject sections. And one of the, um, the subjects is biography, and they have two floors of uh, biography and memoir. And I thought, well, that while it was such a sort of um, uh, an enormous figure in his age that um, people who were roughly his co-evils, if they wrote their memoirs or, or, or their autobiographies, uh, they uh, there might be a very good chance that they would mention uh, Wilde. And um, so I thought I'd spent two weeks just walking through these uh, along these shelves. And um, the, one of the very good uh, things about the library is that they rebind all the books and they put the date of publication uh, on the spine of the book. So you could, any sort of memoir that had been published in the 20, 30 years after Wilde's death, death so in the first three decades of the um, uh, 20th century, I would take down and look if it had an index, uh, some of them, uh, <laughs> and try and find a, a reference to Wilde. And it was amazing. I mean, over the course of this, these two weeks, I mean, I think I, I found um, uh, dozens, possibly hundreds of new sort of uh, references to, uh, uh, to Oscar. And, um, and there were some interesting ones written by um, women sort of who had known Oscar while he was at university. They'd generally been the sort of high-minded um, daughters of uh, Victorian academics who were in that first cohort of women who themselves could perhaps go to university or, st or study um, and and they'd gone on to do interesting things and they'd written their, uh, their memoirs and they'd recalled that the youthful Oscar at Wilde and one of them mentioned how she'd been at a uh, dance with him in um, one of these commem balls uh, at the end of the summer term and He'd said two things to her. One that he was so excited, was having such a lovely evening because he was wearing buckles on his shoes. And he thought that if one could wear buckles on one's shoes, one would always be happy. And the other was that he thought uh, that he wished um, uh, that he'd been, uh, that he had blonde hair rather than dark hair. So he was an early, an early <laughs> person, a blonde. Uh, and then another person who met him, I think it was another commendable, um, he was uh, telling her about his uh, his recommendations for the perfect dinner party. And he said that there should be um, uh, very little light. He thought candlelight, uh, he wanted uh, candlelight. Um, uh, lots to drink, not very much to eat, and masses of flowers. And, um, and it's, I mean, it's not a bad recipe, really. <laughs> I think I'm gradually working our way towards it. But um, so those sort of, yes, that unexpected sort of uh, side uh, sidelights were a sort of constant joy to come across. And then there was another thing that was, um, was it intriguing, which I found on a scrap of paper in the, in the great Wildian archive at, at um, uh, UCLA and, and um, the, uh, the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library in, um, in LA. There was a famous telegram that uh, Alfred Douglas had sent to his father, the Marquis of Queensbury, when the Marquis of Queensbury had told him that he must break off his uh, friendship with, uh, with Oscar Wilde. This was before the trial. Um, 
and the court case and everything. And, and uh, Queen Street was just trying to um, uh, break up the, uh, the association and friendship between his son and Wilde. And um, of course, Alfred Douglas hated being told what to do and, and res responded to his father's sort of rather intemperate demand. Um, what a funny little man you are. And this is always so quoted as a sort of extraordinary piece of rudeness and um, by Douglas and showing the sort of viciousness of the uh, the, the familial um, strife that existed in the Douglas family. But in this archive in um, uh, in LA on this piece of paper, I found that um, someone had copied out. Uh, the lines of a musical song. Um, and it turned out that in the 1890s, um, at this period, there was a, a musical song that went, Mr. Kicklebury Brown of Camden Town, what a funny little man you are. And that was the, the, the chorus of the, of the song. Now, both Douglas and the Marcus Queensbury were very keen on, uh, on the musical uh, anyway, so they'd have been entirely familiar uh, with, this, uh, with, with this song, which is, been otherwise lost to time. Let's talk about De Profundis. Is it accurate that while he was in jail, he was given only one sheet of paper per day to write on? I know, that it is an amazing thought. I mean, I think they probably did bend the rules, but if you, if you read it and see how it flows and how the ideas flow through it, I mean, the, the, the thought that he was able to do that by just retaining these, uh, uh, you know, his arguments uh, in his memory and uh, and picking them up um, uh, the next day is something extraordinary. Right. I mean, because it's the document in in whole is about a hundred pages. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so and, he, and because he only had one sheet, he wrote. Um, very, uh, very small lettering and very um, and tiny gaps between the lines. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary manuscript to, to look at I and mean, just the, the, the sort of density uh, of it all. It was not printed until after Wilde had died and it was not printed in complete form, right? That's right, yes. I mean, he, he wrote, well, uh, or began writing uh, it as a, a letter to Lord Alfred Douglas his um, his lover, who really th sort of um, had steered him into the predicament that he uh, in which he discovered himself, uh, because of course it was Lord Alfred Douglas's father, the Marquis of Queensbury, who'd sort of provoked uh, Wilde into launching an ill-considered libel action uh, against the Marquis, uh, which had then. Uh, sort of opened the way for the police to start investigating Wilde's various homosexual uh, relationships and liaisons with, uh, not really with Lord Alfred Douglas himself, but with all these um, uh, rent boys and, uh, and young men that he picked up in London. And um, although initially Wilde, uh, sort of during the course of the trials and uh, during the first days of his imprisonment, sort of um, felt only uh, sort of, love and affection uh, towards Alfred Douglas and his memory and felt that it, you know, this sort of awful thing that had fallen on him was a, a sort of testament to their great love. Um, over the course of his sentence, he, he came to realise that actually uh, it was almost the complete opposite and, and uh, 
he, he'd been led to this sort of awful uh, strait, really through the, the the selfishness and the vindictiveness and the the, the vanity of um, Alfred Douglas and uh, well and the whole Douglas family and their sort of you know, Oscar had found himself caught up um, between these uh, these warring parties and and so he wrote this letter really to sort of set set down his feelings about Douglas and the role Douglas had played in his uh, um, his fall. Uh, but then also to make a, a sort of gradually, as he wrote it, he, he then uh, sort of extended the scope. I mean, both to reflect upon uh, you know his own suffering and uh, and the benefits that that had caused him, uh, you know, uh, that had resulted. How even though he was in this awful um, uh, position, uh, being uh, imprisoned, deprived of all the things that he held. Uh, dear, you know, um, sociability, literature, art, uh, comfort, um, conversation. Um, you know, the, the were certain spiritual gains uh, to come through suffering, um, and from a sort of recognition of uh, the fragility and um, of his position, and uh, you know, he. As I think Max Beerbohm said, he spends you know several pages boasting about his new humility. I mean, because of course, I think as soon as he began writing about anything, the, the poetic uh, um, uh, impetus took over, and so he took a, a certain sort of pleasure in describing his various positions, including his new humility. But then, of course, he extended it even beyond that uh, into a um, uh, a discussion. Uh, really, of, of Christ and the sort of Christ-like image of um, uh, redemption through sacrifice, um, and again, uh, the, the sort of wild in, um, impetus sort of carried him to to view uh, Jesus as a sort of um, uh, precursor of Oscar Wilde, you know, another great talker, a man who expressed all his greatest ideas through stories, you know, the, the parables, and, and somebody who um, had uh, asserted their, uh, and fulfilled their individuality through their vision, and uh, of course that was always Wilde's great, uh, great goal, you know, to, uh, to, to be oneself. Um, so, so that yes, the do the document turned into this sort of um, fantastic part autobiographical, part uh, philosophical uh, text, uh, but sort of topped and tailed with a sort of dear Alfred uh, Douglas um, um, uh, and um, uh, you know uh, yours Oscar Wilde at the end, but um, and. I think when he came out, he, the, the vision uh, was that the letter should be sent uh, sent to, to Douglas, but that copies should be made with a view to, uh, to publication. And really, one of his f first thoughts was that the philosophical elements of, uh, of the letter should be um, uh, extracted and published separately. And it's a, a slight mystery as to why that didn't happen. I mean, it sort of uh, could have happened. I, th I think he was sort of um, uh, overtaken um, by other events uh, a bit. I mean, he had that success as soon as he came out of prison uh, in that he was able to complete uh, the Ballad of Reading Jail and, and publish uh, that. And 
and that was the most successful book he he, he published um, in his lifetime. Um, and more successful than any of the plays were the plays published in his lifetime. Well, the plays were were published, but of course the plays were um, the plays were the most successful things he did, but they were successful as plays, um, and only. Um, Lady Windermere's fan, I, th uh, I think that's right, was published before his imprisonment. And, you know, and of course, people will will buy a play to read, but not in the numbers that they would uh, pay to uh, uh, go and see it. Um, uh, and so, yes, I think in, in terms of um, copies sold, uh, uh, the ballad leads the, leads the way. And of course, because the picture of Dorian Gray um, is one novel, uh, when that, that appeared initially, as a, a sort of um, uh, novella inside a, 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 um, in a magazine, uh, in Lippincott's Lip uh, um, monthly magazine. And they you know, made a feature of, um, in each uh, monthly edition, they'd bring out a, a, a complete short novel. And, uh, and that edition of Lippincott's magazine then certainly sold you know, tens of thousands of copies and was a big success. Um, and Wilde thought he might capitalise on that by adding a few extra chapters and bringing it out in book form, uh, which he did, um, but was sort of disappointed really to find that, of course, you know, the moment had passed, people had read it in the, in the magazine, they didn't think they needed to go and get the, uh, the hardcover book with you know, a couple of extra chapters of padding as they probably saw it um and so uh so yes that wasn't the um the commercial success that he hoped it might be interesting so to go back to De Profundis for just a moment uh do we know when Bosey, when Lord Alfred Douglas received the copy of De Profundis that Wilde intended for him um sort of yes I mean it was uh um, the the instructions that um, Wilde gave to uh, to Robbie Ross was, uh, was that he needed to have copies made uh, of the um, the manuscript, and uh, the thought was yes, one would be kept, um, or two would be kept, one sent to Alfred Douglas, and then the, um, the there were going to be copies of this sort of edited philosophical highlights that were going to be distributed to a, a couple of friends and um and maybe publishers as well and so uh, so that would have taken um at least a few weeks after his um of Wilde's release but um so it would have yes been that summer of uh, um 1980 when he came out and the urban uh, wild came out of prison and i mean i think i, I certainly was con uh, convinced myself that it did happen um and that douglas received the package and he, he was a very intemperate uh, fellow and he sort of began and he began reading it and realized it was sort of um he was aware that uh, that uh, Wilde was cross with him and now blamed him for everything, and he was was very upset and appalled at this uh, because he um, uh, had remained, uh, you know, true to Wilde and his affection for Wilde, uh, and he thought it was completely unjust Wilde's um, uh, strictures against him, 
And so I think he began reading this long letter and and, and as soon as it started attacking him, he felt, I don't, don't want to go on reading any of this rubbish and, and uh, threw the uh, thing in the fire or in the bin. And uh, because then certainly Wilde's uh, um, post-prison dealings with Alfred Douglas, he, he gradually gets drawn back into his orbit but he and he sort of uh, you sense an anxiety in those early encounters as to you know what Bosey will you know how he will answer the charges that are, are laid against him in De Profundis. So, at some point soon after Wilde was released from prison, Bosey, Lord Alfred Douglas, did receive yeah. the letter De Profundis. Yeah. So this would have been in 1897. Yep. Yeah. And he allegedly burned it. Yep. As you were explaining, right? But then they got back together and they were where? In Italy together? Uh, when Wilde was finishing writing jail, he talks, he mentions to in a letter to Robbie Ross, like Bosey sends his regards. <laughs> yes. So so they um they met up in, in France and then they traveled uh, to Italy, to Naples, uh, together. And of course, all their uh, their friends were appalled at this, uh, th that they'd come back together again, because they, I think, saw how destructive um, the relationship had, had been. And, um, uh, and they'd, I think, been rather amazed that, that, that Wilde had, uh, had, you know, uh, had this prison revelation and, and uh, um, seen with a sudden clarity the destructive nature of uh, Douglas's personality and their relationship. And it was very upsetting to them to um, uh, that you know suddenly everything had fallen back to uh, how it had been before, um, and of course it was uh, it had a material impact um, on Wilde and and Douglas because amongst those who were disapproving were uh, Wilde's um, wife uh, Constance, who um, she had the the money and the. The relationship and she'd agreed to pay uh, Oscar an allowance when he came out of prison uh, but on condition that he didn't um, and I think the in the legal document it said you know um, consort with disreputable people but I mean by which she meant Lord Alfred Douglas and similarly Douglas's mother um, who paid him an allowance she uh, was determined that he shouldn't get back together with uh, with Oscar and so when they uh, it was discovered that they were living together uh, in a villa outside Naples. Um, that both of them had their allowance cut off, <laughs> and so and they had uh, no real money um, uh, with which to uh, to live. I mean, uh, Wilde's publisher sent him um, something. You know, was able to send him something for the Ballad of Reading Jail, and um, uh, uh, and. You know there were possible other literary projects, but uh, it really made the the chances of uh, living together, you know, practically uh, impossible. So to jump ahead a little bit, because I have so many questions for you, um, but to jump ahead to a topic that is still related to this this idea of de profundis and the relationship between um, Alfred Douglas and Wilde post prison, right? Um, once Wilde died in 1900. A few years later, there was a publication of De Profundis that enraged Lord Alfred Douglas, right? And by this time, 
had he also converted to Roman Catholicism and he was married to a woman? Yeah, yes. So this is a plot so, twist. <laughs> so they, 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 they kept the series running. So, they, um, yes, it was a, 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 um, a before, um, uh, I think that uh, there were sort of edited extracts of the philosophical side of De Profundis uh, were published, and that was fine. But the idea that it was a, a letter lambasting Alfred Douglas, um, that came out um, when uh, a, a book uh, was published in, I think, 1912 or so, um, uh, by Arthur Ransom who you know, went on to write Swallows and Amazons and those books. Uh, and it was really a literary study of Wilde's works, but it had a biographical uh, introductory chapter. And um, for the details of that biography, he was helped by Wilde's great friend and literary executor, uh, Robbie Ross. And Robbie Ross, of course, had a, a, the copy, well, the original of, um, uh, of this Wilde letter that we know as De Profundis. And, um, uh, and so he was able to tell Ransom, you know, the broad details that while, you know, came to blame Douglas for uh, his his position of being in, in prison. And so that was mentioned really just in, in sort of passing in, um, uh, in Ransom's introduction. And um, Douglas, who, as you say, by this stage, uh, not only married um, a woman, a poet, Olive Custance, uh, but converted to Roman Catholicism, was um, appalled uh, to, to have his name sort of used in this way and thought it was totally unjustified and, um, and so sued uh, Arthur Ransom. And um, Ransom, to defend himself, um, had to... Uh, uh, sort of show that where the evidence had come from. And, and, uh, and so Ross uh, produced the, uh, the um, copy of uh, De Profundis and it was read out in court that this whole letter with all its sort of terrible descriptions of um, uh, Douglas's um, uh, selfishness and terrible behavior and um, uh, viciousness. And, um, and, and Douglas had, you know, sort of stood there aghast at, uh, uh, at this sort of character assassination. Uh, but um, uh, you know, as with Wilde's trial, he brought it upon himself in this awful way. But uh, but then he was furious with Ross for having uh, kept, you know, as he saw it, kept the letter back from him, and uh, and certainly having kept the original letter, which he uh, Ross had deposited at the. Um, uh, at the British Library or British Museum, as it was then, um, uh, with instructions that it shouldn't be uh, be read for uh, or, uh, for fifty years, um, and um, so he yes sort of launched a campaign to uh, well first of all to vilify Ross, but then also to uh, recover the letter, you know possibly so he could destroy it again, but he was thwarted. Right, that is a plot twist indeed. So let's talk about Wilde's reputation since he's died, because it seems like it's been an interesting sort of process of resurrecting him, reclaiming him um, at home in Ireland, um, and then just around the world, right? H how have you observed Wilde's studies and Wilde's reputation evolving 
over the course of the last few decades? I mean, compared to where it was at the time of his death in, in 1900. Well, yes, well, in 1900, I mean, the, some of the sort of reviews, I mean, you know, suggested that uh, he and his works would be forgotten within a generation. I mean, um, and I think it was interesting that, I mean, that absolutely did not happen and it did not happen quite quickly as it, as it were. I mean, interest in his work um, really, I mean, barely died and, and began to uh, to grow in the decades immediately after his death and the, the publication of De Profundis, that sort of helped uh, uh, a great deal in, the, in its expurgated form because it sort of, I think, allowed the public to feel, you know, that he had, uh, that he'd suffered and that he'd, um, uh, and that he'd reconciled himself to the suffering and felt that he'd, he'd sort of gained something from it. So it, uh, it sort of made them feel better about the whole uh, awfulness of uh, his situation. Uh, and of course, his plays went on being performed and, and giving uh, huge pleasure. But there's no doubt that, I mean, in uh, more recent decades, I mean, as you say, in the last uh, two or three decades, his his stature really has has grown um, and continues to grow in a in an extraordinary uh, way. I mean, I think um, you know of all those great Victorian thinkers. I mean, from Ruskin and Carlyle, Matthew Arnold, and Walter Pater and people. I mean, they um, have faded from, uh, from certainly from the popular consciousness, um, whereas Wild uh, becomes more and more. Uh, present and his uh, his ideas uh, more and more uh, intriguing, more and more engaged with uh, by people. And of course, I mean, he has a, a sort of role and a status as a, uh, a sexual heretic and as a, um, a political subversive and social subversive. Um, and he I think in recent times has achieved a, um, a sort of new currency as a, uh, as a precursor of celebrity culture in a way, because his early career is quite extraordinary in that he, he sort of arrived in London from university um, with the stated determination to become famous. That's what he wanted. I want to become famous, and if not famous, notorious. And then the amazing thing was um, that he achieved that goal, and within two years of, uh, of um, coming down from university, uh, he was enormously famous in London without really having done anything. You know, he'd, he'd published a, a scant handful of poems, um, uh, but by his very subtle and, and well, um, and as we now think think of it, you know, sort of prescient uh, use of the press or sort of engagement with the press he had become famous, and if not famous, notorious. I mean, he, he could boast uh, that, uh, uh, you know, by the end of um, 1881, you know, he was uh, the most paragraphed man in London, uh, aside from murderers and politicians. But uh, that was uh, an incredible achievement, although, of course, he then really realised that, you know, what a Faustian pact uh, that was. And having thought that it would enormously help his artistic ambitions. I think he came to realize that it, um, it did quite the reverse. It actually hindered his artistic uh, ambitions. Um, 
So yes, he's both a lesson and a warning in that respect. But I mean, that's again, one of the things that makes him um, enormously interesting to us now. So it seems that his sort of place in this, not, not necessarily the birth of celebrity culture, because I feel like we can trace that back earlier. I mean, I'm thinking just in terms of, of London history and London stage history, but that certainly seems like um, one of Oscar's claims to fame in terms yes. of how his legacy lives on. Um, what do you see beyond that as his greatest contributions, either to, to literary history or just to cultural history, to the history of gender and sexuality? I mean, in this moment that we're living in now, when we think we have made progress here in the U.S., we're seeing all sorts of um, setbacks when it comes to the lives of LGBTQ people. Where do you see Wilde fitting in that conversation now? Well, I mean, I think his his sort of radical, you know, uh, belief in individual expression and um, uh, the, the importance of uh, of self fulfillment and uh, his refusal to be constrained by conventional uh, Moralities. I mean, those are all very sustaining sort of ideas and positions for for all sorts of people, but you know, across all walks of life. I mean, it is uh, it's an amazing thing. Uh, I don't know when you were last in Paris and whether you went and uh, to, uh, and saw his um, his tomb, his uh, at Père Lachaise at the cemetery. And I mean, I remember when I first went to visit it. I suppose in the beginning of the 1980s or, or whatever, you know, there was a lone chrysanthemum in a milk bottle or something beside it. But now they've had to erect sort of glass screens around it. And the glass screens are um, sort of graffitied over or so they, they have lipstick marks on them. And, and all these people, um, you know, saying, thank you, Oscar, you know, grazie, Oscar, or whatever, you know, sort of in all the languages of, uh, of the world as... Uh, you know that he is, has become a sort of a touchstone for that um, defiant um, self uh, self expression and uh, assertion, and so that, and that is uh, something very yes uh, important. I mean, and culturally beyond that, I mean, it is an amazing achievement that his work is still read and enjoyed enormously. I mean, uh, uh, just the year before the pandemic plated um, the theatrical world we had a whole uh, the one of the theaters in, in London ran a whole season um, throughout the year of Wilde's plays and you know it went very uh, well which is um, an extraordinary achievement for you know for any playwright but uh, uh, you know for a, for a 19th century playwright to still have a voice that carries over the centuries like that and uh, and the nights I went to, uh, to see um, the shows, you know, you were in a full house with people young and old, you know, roaring with laughter at uh, this incredible dialogue, these ridiculous situations. I mean, it was um, very impressive. Um, and the picture of Dorian Gray, I mean, that you know, gets refashioned by each generation. The films, a film gets made of it, but I mean, it's still read as a book. And that idea of the picture in the attic, I mean, people who've never read the book and barely know if, uh, know, if it, know what what that means you know and uh, and so to have created uh, a sort of um 
a, a paradigm like that is, uh, you know, something rare and uh, uh, remarkable. As we are doing this interview right now, the director, Robert Wilson, has a production up in Lithuania called Dory. Yes. And then people know what that what's involved. Yes. I mean, right. I Which is just amazing. So something we haven't touched on yet that I would love to hear your thoughts on a little bit is the fact that Wilde spent like an entire year in America early in his career, right? Like you say, he had only published a volume of poems called Poems. Um, but he spent a whole year lecturing uh, in America. We have beautiful photographs, iconic photographs of him from that trip. And this is, of course, the trip where, as you mentioned in a note in your biography, that we don't actually have evidence that Wilde said he had nothing to declare but his genius. Um, but clearly he was he was quite a genius because that was a successful year for him, wasn't it? It, it was. I mean, that I think... Um... At the end of that, uh, of the, the previous year, when he sort of achieved this celebrity and realized that it wasn't going to help him artistically, he was stuck with that, the, the conundrum, which I think faces many people who've become famous for being famous, you know, of how to, to monetize his fame. And he, re and he realized, or he was uh, uh, helped and advised by his friends uh, towards the notion that... Um, uh, lecturing was a way that people would come to see him because they'd heard of him uh, if he was giving a lecture. And because he was, he'd really achieved his fame by trying to be the living embodiment of this idea of aestheticism, this sort of cultural idea that, you know, uh, beauty should be introduced into every uh, element of our, uh, of our daily life. Um, it was decided that he should lecture upon aestheticism and uh, that he should dress up to look aesthetic and sort of wear the, the, you know, the, the costume that was perceived of uh, as being uh, the aesthetic garb. Of course, he began, uh, you know, being a, uh, a sort of Oxford scholar and everything by uh, writing this sort of very theoretical lecture about the notion of aestheticism and the history of aestheticism. And in his first sentence of his talk, he, he mentions Goethe and, you know, soon after he's mentioning Ruskin and all these thinkers. And of course, the Americans didn't really want to hear about all that. I mean, I don't think anyone did. Uh, uh, and luckily, his second lecture was in Philadelphia and uh, a nice um, newspaper editor there explained that really what the Americans wanted was practical information uh, about how to uh, how to make their houses nice. And so Wilde hastily rewrote his lecture and made it much more practical and sort of engaged with the uh, the physicalities of um, beautification, and uh, and it became su uh, successful, very successful. And the tour, which was supposed to last maybe a month or uh, or so, was gradually extended in this sort of piecemeal way over the course of the year. And uh, you know, a promoter in the south said, you know, he would run a tour through the southern states, and then there was a move to uh, to run a tour through Canada, and then he went right out. Uh, uh, past the Rockies to um, to the West Coast, and um, he adored San Francisco and uh, uh, lectured all around the uh, the Bay Area, and had yes this extraordinary experience of travelling across the continent, being fated wherever uh, he went, and uh, and making money for the first time in his life. Um, so it was a, a very 
thrilling experience for, for him and and an interesting experience for America, I think, uh, as well, in, the, in that uh, I think it did have a, uh, an impact. It introduced these ideas, which, of course, were percolating in the in the cultural mix anyway but he sort of brought them up to the uh, to the boil and um uh, you know uh, did a certain amount for improving the general quality of wallpaper design across uh, north america so that was uh, how successful was wild that year financially i mean was that sort of the financial highlight of his of his lifetime no so it was i, I think it was uh, it was the first time that he had uh, made money, um, but he probably at the end of the the year, um, after all the expenses had been taken off, uh, and uh, he probably made uh, roughly the equivalent of I should think sixty thousand pounds to take home with him at the end of the uh, the year. So. So, so whatever, I guess, I mean, I'm afraid this week that's about $60,000, isn't it? But, <laughs> but uh, normally it'd be slightly more than that. Um, but the, um, and so that sort of gave him the possibility of uh, um, a year or plus, uh, you know, that he could work on other things. And, and his great, uh, you know, plan was to sit down and write a successful play, but uh, he sat down and he wrote um, a, a five-act um Cod medieval, uh, you know, sort of Shakespearean drama set in um, Renaissance Italy called The Duchess of Padua, uh, which uh, nobody wanted to put on. So, uh, um, so the, the, the success didn't last. And then he didn't really make money again until um, 10 years later uh, in, in 1892. Um, that he did his tour in 1892 uh, was when Lady Windermere's fan, his first social comedy, um, uh, came on. And that was an enormous success. And if you had a successful play, that was uh, an amazing moment. And then you, you started earning uh, serious money. But in that intervening decade, he was really sustained by the fact that he'd married a, um, a wealthy um, a woman, girl, Constance Lloyd. And, and it was her money that paid for their nice house in Tight Street and um, and kept the boat afloat. It's interesting looking at pictures. The the photographer that took pictures of Wilde uh, during his tour, I guess Wilde went back in 1883, and his look had changed drastically. Yes. What what necessitated this change in style? <laughs> well, it, well, he was just excited by the idea that you could change your look, and so that that was in 1882 in the initial tour. He um, he had long hair, uh, and he was very pleased with his long hair look. And then in his the the sort of um, when he uh, took his sixty thousand pounds, as it were, and um, he went he, he went to Paris because he thought that that was an artistic city, and he sort of rented nice rooms, and he would sit in his rooms writing the Duchess of Padua, and he went to the Louvre uh, sort of most weeks, and he was very taken by uh, the bust of. Um, Nero, I think it was, uh, one of the Roman emperors uh, in the Louvre, and um, he had, uh, had this sort of hairstyle where the hair was all sort of fluffed up to look almost like a laurel wreath. I think that was the sort of idea. And so um, I thought that this would be his new look. And so he took his barber uh, to the Louvre to look at the, um, or so he said, 
uh, to, to look at the statue and um, the bust and uh, work out how to create the hairstyle. So he'd had that hairstyle. And then I think at the end of um, April, sort of the sun, late summer, uh, 1883, when he went over to America for the, uh, um, for the production, not of uh, the Duchess of Padua, but for the first play he'd written, an earlier piece, which was a, um, a melodrama about Russian nihilists called Vera. And he'd found an American actress uh, um, who was keen to put it on. And so he'd gone over for the, uh, for the opening um, night of that. And he thought a new look was re required and um, he'd gone for this sort of uh, very, um, almost a sort of pudding basin uh, haircut with a sort of fringe across the front. Um, and he might have kept that, except that the um, the play was such a disaster and sort of closed sort of within the week that uh, I think he perhaps associated it with the disastrous hairstyle. And, uh, uh, but throughout his life, he, he, he was, he played with this idea of, you know, um, adopting a look uh, and that look being part of, um, you know, his persona of the moment. Um, on the subject of, of Wilde uh, as a sort of master stylist, what is important today, do you think? What has endured around this idea of the green carnation? What did it mean in Wilde's moment and, and how has it transcended time in any kind of way? So the, uh, the, green, uh, the, the green carnation was a, was a wonderful creation of his. Well, I don't know if he created it or it was something that he'd... Um, seen in a uh, in a London florist in the 1890s where the um they'd worked out how to stain a white carnation green by um splitting the stem and uh, and um placing the uh, uh the, the flower uh or the the stem into some green ink and the uh, the the ink would draw up through the stem and color the white uh flower and wild um sort of philosophically was um, uh, intrigued always by the relationship between art and nature. And, and essentially his philosophical idea was to, to always set art above nature. Right? You know, the conventional wisdom had been to say, you know, nature is the great thing, art sort of you know, echoes nature. As, uh, but Wilde uh, says that actually uh, art is what creates our world. Nature, you know, nature itself is, um, uh, incoherent and uh, would mean nothing to us with, uh, without the, the intervention of great artists and their vision. And so this flower, which he, um, uh, he encountered, uh, seemed to be this wonderful expression of the triumph of art over nature. And so it, uh, then he thought that there would be sort of scope for um, some sort of subversive fun uh, with it. So at the uh, the first night of uh, Lady Windermere's Fan, his first um, social comedy, um, he had one of the characters, a sort of um, uh, a dandified figure uh, called Cecil Graham uh, on the stage, wear one of these green carnations. So um, he came on with a green carnation in his buttonhole. But then Wilde had also got several of his friends, um, uh, young men, to. Uh, uh, to, uh, who he had invited to the opening night of the play uh, to go to the, uh, the florist and uh, equip themselves also with green carnations. So throughout the house, 
that uh, uh, that uh, um, opening night, uh, there were you know half a dozen or uh, or so uh, young men with green carnations. Then there was somebody on the stage. Someone came onto the stage with the green carnation, and everyone in the audience, you know, uh, some people in the audience were intrigued and picked up on this thing and thought, "What does it mean?" And so it created a uh, a, um, uh, a sort of sense of mystery and. Um, uh, and the idea that there might be some sort of clandestine code uh, being uh, expressed to an extent that was, uh, but also was just the sort of playfulness of um, of carrying off this uh, this trick uh, on the on the world. I mean, uh, then the the notion of the green carnation had a further resonance when uh, um, this friend of worlds or a sort of young disciple who'd come into his circle published a book of thinly um, veiled satire on Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas in uh, 1894 uh, and it was called The Green Carnation um, uh, and it is still a very amusing book to read I mean it is a, it's a clever piece of um, uh, of satire uh, but it did Wilde a good deal of damage because it sort of pointed out the um, uh, the nature of his relationship with uh, with Alfred Douglas, and um, and so although I think he enjoyed it to an extent, he, he sort of his public pronouncements were that um, uh, you know he uh, he had very little regard for it as a novel. That the flower was a work of art, the novel was not. Was his line uh, on that? Amazing. I love that. Thank you. The next question is, was Wilde a feminist, a misogynist, both or neither? Well, I think probably, <laughs> I should think probably both is, always, is, is often the safest um, uh, assumption with Wilde because, uh, I mean, he, one of the many sensible things he said was that, you know, uh, uh, in art, a, a truth is something whose opposite is also true, uh, and he um, he found it uh, both easy and I think sort of stimulating to hold contrary positions on uh, on things. So um, he had, I mean, enormous personal uh, respect and um, affection and admiration for. Uh, for many women, I mean, uh, most notably his mother, who was this amazing figure known to us as Speranza, but um, Jane Francesca uh, Wilde, uh, or Lady Wilde as she became after um, uh, her husband was knighted, who had achieved this extraordinary reputation as a, as a poet in Ireland uh, and as a leader of nationalist um, political sentiment and was a great um, sort of social force. She loved bringing people together and uh, created a wonderful salon in Dublin and then uh, and more distant echo of that uh, when she came to London um, uh, with Oscar and uh, his brother Willie um, at the beginning of the 1880s. The, the great sadness of his last years, he always said when he came out of prison was that um, the, the sort of disgrace of his uh, time in incarceration meant that Social um, uh, structures were all um, uh, had all collapsed. There was no way he could go back into society, and so he lived out his last years in exile. And although he was visited by friends, they were 
almost exclusively, but I mean, not uh, quite uh, male French because it was, uh, I mean, um, it was much harder uh, for women to um, travel independently and to encounter him. And he said that that was really the, the thing that he missed most, the, 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 the conversation and the company of society women, their, their wit, their um, vitality, their, uh, uh, and the great encouragement that they gave him. Uh, I mean, they, you know, throughout his career had been his great supporters and his great helpers. I mean, um, when he first came to London, his his sort of rise to uh, fame and success really came through the support and the interest of uh, of women. Of, uh, they were the hostesses, they were the people who organized uh, society. And he was able to repay that sort of debt of their interest and encouragement um, in the late 1880s when he became uh, the editor of uh, Women's World, this uh, this magazine, uh, and a, a job that he, he did with real Elan um, and success for uh, for two three years, um, and he encouraged many um, uh, uh, women writers and um, gave them a, a platform for their views and their uh, and their writing. So I think you know that is the, the you know the the beating heart of his uh, engagement and his relationship with women and with feminism and of course in his plays or, or whatever I mean he sort of has um uh, you know people say sort of smart or disparaging things for or against women and women's education or, or whatever but uh, I think those are uh, fleeting instances and um yes you'd have to say his greatest dramatic creation is probably Lady Bracknell you know who um I mean is a woman obviously although there is that famous line that you know all uh, um, female actors want to play Hamlet and all male actors want to play Lady Bracknell. So I don't know where that uh, um, leaves her really on the on the scale of things. That's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic insight. Yes. Oscar had a niece named Dolly Wilde. Did you come across much about Dolly whenever you were writing your biography about Oscar? So, I mean, obviously she was a, a thread that sort of um, uh, left uh, hanging at the end of the tale. She was the um, the daughter of his his elder brother, Willie uh, Wilde, who, who um, actually predeceased Oscar by, uh, by a year. And so she was left as a young child to be brought up by her mother and... Um, uh, and then, yes, I mean, she had this interesting life sort of in literary circles in Paris in the uh, in the 1910s and 20s. She, the sort of, yes, the intriguing sort of uh, connection really I, I made with her was that she had an affair when she was in Paris with Natalie Barney. And while during that year he'd had in America in 1882, had met... Natalie Barney, Natalie Barney at that uh, at that stage was a sort of six-year-old girl who'd been um, playing on the beach at um, Long Beach, I think, or, uh, and um, was being you know sort of chased and bullied by some uh, rough boys. And and Oscar came and uh, swooped her up, uh, scooped her up, and um, uh, protected her, and then and started telling her stories. And uh, so it's an, an amazing idea that you know. Uh, 
the cultural history can, you know, concertina in that way, and you can get suddenly from uh, from Long Beach to the uh, Rive Gauche in Paris. Yeah, and she Dolly looks looked a lot like Oscar. Like there was a distinct family resemblance, right? Yes, yeah. She uh, she she had that same sort of handsome but quite long face, the slightly turned down uh, corners on the eyes, um, and and um, apparently she had much of his wit and his intelligence. I mean, you know, that Wildian intellect was you know a very strong. Uh, strong force. I only know of one biography of her and I think that the the woman who wrote it died recently. I had tried to locate her a few years back, but Dolly was seemed to have a fairly open kind of lesbian life in Paris. Yes, the, yeah. I mean, um I guess she would have been there around the same time as Gertrude Stein. Yes, yeah, no, it's all uh, part of uh, of that world, and um, Rene Vivian and and Winnetta Singer, and I mean, Paris was a a, a sort of a centre for that sort of expatriate transgressive transgressive circle. So um, uh, no, I mean, she's she's certainly someone who would be ripe for further study, and um, that could be your next book. Well, <laughs> tell, tell us, what is your next book? What is your current research? What are you working well, on? I, having written this great big book on Oscar, uh, I, I thought that my next book must be something shorter. Uh, really. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, for myself and pro probably for my readers as well. So, um, so I've come up with the notion to write um, a short book of three sort of slightly uh, interlinked um biographical studies of minor figures from this period, from this uh, uh, fin de siècle um, moment. And uh, the thing that links them all is that they are all the siblings of more successful brothers. Uh, so the book is going to be called Relative Failures. And the, uh, the three figures are um, Oscar Wilde's hapless elder brother, Willie, the father of Dolly Wilde, Aubrey Beardsley's beautiful red-headed sister, Mabel Beardsley. Um, and then, in fact, my great-great-uncle, uh, Howard Overing Sturgis, who you're allowed never to have heard of, but who was the brother of uh, the even, I mean, now even less famous, Julian Sturgis. Who, but when they were um, alive at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, Julian was a very well-known literary figure, um, prolific and uh, popular novelist. He wrote the libretto of uh, Arthur Sullivan's one serious opera. Um, Sullivan you know, uh, collaborated, of course, with Gilbert on all these humorous operas, but his great ambition was to write a serious opera based on Walter Scott's novel, Ivanhoe. And eventually, um, uh, his producer, uh, Richard Doylicard, the, the same man who produced Oscar Wilde's lecture tour of America, uh, said, OK, uh, Arthur, you can write your serious opera, um, but we, we need to find someone new to write the libretto. And he got Julian Sturgis to write the libretto. And, um, and uh, Howard, Julian's younger brother, wanted to be a writer as well. And had worked really for a decade on this book, which he hoped was going to be a great success. But on the eve of publication, he showed it to his friend, rather older friend, um, 
Henry James, um, Howard and Julian, they were both American born, but educated in England. But so they belong to that sort of expatriate Anglo-American world. Um, and anyway, uh, Henry James was disparaging about Howard's um, efforts with uh, uh, Bell Chamber. And poor Howard was devastated and uh, it, uh, wanted to withdraw the book from the press, but it was too late. And it came out and actually was it was fine. It got nice reviews. Edith Wharton, his other great friend, said, you know, it's a fantastic book. Howard. Well, why did you ever think to show it to Henry James? He's the last person who <laughs> Asked for advice because he could only see the world, you know, as Henry James would write it. And of course, only Henry James could write uh, Henry James' book. Um, but even so, I think it sort of slightly set him back. And so he then gave up um, his literary ambitions pretty much and returned to his first love, which was embroidery. And he sort of lived out his uh, days in a nice house on the edge of um, uh, Windsor Great Park with his companion, the babe, William Haynes Smith. Uh, doing his embroidery and entertaining his friends, um, but the, but the the curious thing uh, with uh, that that is that although Howard sort of thought of himself as a failure in literary terms, um, in the decades since his death, uh, sort of every generation, you know, sort of uh, some magazine or um, um, literary publication sort of uh, asks people to come up with um, you know, uh, a, a book or uh, books that should be better known. And somebody always chooses Howard Sturgis's Bell Chamber as an, an unjust, justly neglected novel. And so it gets reissued in a new edition. And um, most recently it was reissued by uh, the New York Times Review of Books um, imprint uh, with a forward by Edmund White. And so, yes, so he's a sort of curious example of someone who thought they were a failure, but actually has achieved a, uh, an enduring posthumous success of a modest sort. Wow. Relative failures. I'm, I'm, I'm in. So I can... <laughs> I'll tell the publishers we've got a possible sale. Yes. Um, well, so I have to thank you so much for talking with me about your book and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge about Wild. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more from Thinking Cap Theatre's podcast. <laughs>